Good morning again. As I mentioned last week, each week's sermon will be preached from a different place on the church's property so as to underscore and accent something central or important to the commandment that we are looking for on that particular, looking at that particular Sunday. Today I'm also not, uh, I'm outside, of course, and, and not wearing my normal clergy robe. The main reason I'm preaching outside today is because this is a space that is a bit less predictable. The weather, the wind, vehicle noise, airplane noise, beautiful wind chimes, the fact that a person could walk up in the midst of all of this. There's just less control over this space. And I'm not wearing a clergy robe because that's also a little less expected by many of us. And this aspect of of less control, less predictability, less uh, expected, I think those speak into something of the heart of what the second commandment would have us consider. But first, before we we look fully into that commandment, let us hear our second reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him All things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was my freshman year of high school when my classmates and I were all assigned a bug collection project to be done in pairs. Uh, Bear with me because I know some of you know some of this story. But we were given a number of weeks to collect 25 different insects and and my best friend and I, we headed out for our assignment and it was not too long before we we saw a butterfly and we began chasing it around and watching its beautiful colored wings flap up and down and over around. And every time we tried to get near and close enough to try to get it, it would get away just beyond our grasp. This is akin to how Scripture speaks of God. We can draw quite near to this God and God to us, but never can this God be fully or even nearly grasped. For instance, God commands the Israelites just a little bit later in the book of Exodus, and now have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell with them. And so the people, they they build a tabernacle generations later. They build a temple where God dwells. And so you have something manageable, concrete, predictable about where God is found. And yet even as Solomon builds this magnificent temple, he declares to God, the heavens, even the highest heavens, they cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. The temple and all of its architecture do so much to, to help the people know about God and, and, and experience and encounter the living God. But, but even the temple and all of its glory just it cannot nearly or fully contain God or where God is or where God is moving. Eventually, God draws... faithful answer we can give is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as we heard in the Colossians reading. He walked among us, and today we are assured that he is with us and even in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, 
as clear a picture as Jesus is of God, as, as near and as graspable as Jesus is. Jesus' ministry made it equally clear that there was so much that was unpredictable and unexpected when it comes to, to how and where and to whom and through whom he might show up in a feeding trough, in a Gentile Roman officer who wielded the sword on behalf of an unjust empire. That's the one that gets called the one who has the greatest faith in all of Israel. To a common thief on the cross, he's the one promised paradise. Through a woman who's been married five times, She's, been, she's given living water and, and then proves a very effective evangelist. In the tomb of death itself. No wonder the Apostle Paul eventually offers this, uh, prayers like that in the book of Romans. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How, how inscrutable his ways. You can draw near the butterfly. But never can you fully grasp the full beauty and wonder. Where things go off track is when we do, in fact, try to grasp and pin God down. Our official assignment in the ninth grade was to collect these 25 insects, insects, pin them with a needle to a styrofoam board, label them with their scientific name, and then provide a short blurb summarizing their characteristics. And so my friend and I, of course, we, we got wise. We, we, we got a net and we caught that butterfly. We froze the butterfly. We pinned the butterfly. We gave the scientific name and the summary explanation of the things we observed. It was not until many years later that I reflected on the irony of my class, biology, bio, life, ology, the study of a class on the study of life. And never once did we study the butterfly while in flight. We caught it, we examined it, we poked at it, we summarized it, all of this. You can learn important things from, from all of this, but, but of no part in our study of life did we watch the butterfly in wonder. At its essence, the second commandment is all about keeping the people of God from trying to pin God down into something manageable, controllable, formable, explainable, imaginable, summarizable. The most literal interpretation of this commandment means that making a statue and calling it the, the image of God is contrary to God, against God, because it reduces God to, again, something manageable, formable. It, it pins God down to this location, this presence, this way, this look. Now, we don't see a lot of that kind of thing in our culture. The images we make for God, I think, unfold in, in a different way. Think of some of the more powerful experiences maybe you've had of Jesus of his leading, of his love, of, of, of his life in and through you and through the church. Maybe, maybe God did a great work in and through you on a mission trip, youth group experience, an experience with a particular church or, or kind of music. Maybe it was a season of, of, of marriage or parenthood. Maybe it was through a particular pastor or mentor. Maybe a particularly season, vibrant season of prayer. Maybe even in a season of tragedy. 
We all have stories of when God has beautifully and lovingly and strongly led us, filled us, awed us, beckoned us, surprised us. And we give thanks. But sometimes, sometimes that particular experience of God, that particular expression of God proves so beautiful, we want to capture it. That, we want to capture that memory of God and pin it down as the, the, the truest picture of what God alive really looks alive. So, so, for instance, we become enamored with maybe a former church or former version of our, our own church and how things once ran and, and how the people once were and what the programs of the music once were like. And, and that is what the image of God alive is really like. And we pin that down as the sacred memory, the sacred image in our hearts. We become enamored perhaps with, with, with a mission trip or a time of, of, of service or advocacy because that was powerful. That's what the image of God alive really looks like and we, we pin that image down as sacred in our hearts. Or maybe we become enamored with a particular theology or line of teaching and, and that doctrine, that becomes the image of what God is really about and like. We pin that image into our heart as sacred. Or maybe we become enamored with a particular sanctuary or a particular place in a city or country or a holy spot that becomes the image of what God alive really looks like and we pin that down. Or maybe we become enamored with a particular mentor or pastor or theologian or teacher. That's the image of what God alive really looks like and we pin that image as sacred. And here's the real tragedy. When we move beyond appreciating all of that and we narrow God to a specific doctrine, a specific way church needs to be done, a specific way of doing mission, a specific church that we once knew, a specific pastor, a specific season of life, we end up using our energy trying to make the dead image come back to life, just like it was. Some of you will recall this part of my insect story, but I, but I repeat it uh, because I think it leads into an important point about the second commandment. It was the day before the second, uh, before the insect project was due, and we were two or three insects short of our goal of 25. And, and I'm not proud of this, but the truth is, my best friend and I, we went down into his basement to search for his sister's bug project. His sister, who, by the way, was five years older than us and had a bug project then, five years old, sitting in the basement. She had all 25 bugs. We just needed a couple of them and put them on our styrofoam setting. We did notice, of course, that her dead bugs looked especially dead. They lacked a lot of color. For some reason, we thought, well, let's, let's put her project, this styrofoam base and these 25 bugs pinned with metal pins, let's, let's put that in the microwave. If we do a quick reheating, maybe a little bit of the color will return. So we did. We pressed on. We turned around to do a couple other things. In one of the more memorable moments of my life, I, I, I turned back around and in utter awe and fear saw the microwave sparking and exploding as the metal pins were catching on fire and the bugs 
were splattering up against the sides of the microwave. Turns out, you cannot reheat a dead butterfly. And we cannot reheat the way it once was in our church, our family, our job, our country. However alive and beautiful God may very well have been in any and all of those seasons. And actually, not only does it not work, but if you really do try to reheat a dead butterfly, it actually spreads the deadness further. This is why the second commandment, God says that those who do create and worship images of God, they will know punishment to the third and fourth generation. The verb there is not indicating an if-then kind of thing. You know, if you make an image of God, then boom, the hammer of God is coming down. Rather, the sense there is if, if you become enamored with an image that's, that's dead and you spend your time, your energy, your focus, your money, believing it will eventually come back around to life, let's get that back, we can do it, that, that will have repercussions and that deadness will splatter onto future generations. It is passed along. How often we long to get back to so many things especially in a pandemic. But what if in this wilderness experience of ours, God is doing a powerful and beautiful new thing that, that we could see all the more clearly if we can let go of any grasping that may be happening. There's a poem by Wendell Berry that I've long appreciated because of its counterintuitive insight. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound and fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the green heron feeds. I come into the place of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time. I rest in the grace of the world and am free. When the world is falling apart and tragedy is known and fear abounds, I don't go back and, and warm uh, to my warm memories and, and, and images of those memories and try to rekindle a, a, a familiar fire. I go at night to the place of wild things. It goes outside. In his case, it's the dark woods of, of the water and the herons and the creatures that lurk unpredictably and quietly. He goes where most of us might say, that feels unknown, that feels dangerous. A place where who knows what might draw near to you, what might fly around you, what might be hovering just above you, what weather might befall you. And Barry calls life amid the unpredictable wild things. Peace. 
The second commandment is an invitation to fall fully into the darkness of a wild and free God and attend to this God's beauty and love and justice wherever it may be found, in whomever it may be found, wherever it may lead, however unpredictable and unexpected. And so the question is, where is the place of some of those wild things? Of that which is unpredictable? Of that which is wrong or certainly filled with the wrong people? Where's the place that, if nothing else, is, is just pretty dark? Behold, God cries out through the prophet, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Thanks be to God. Amen.